Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Every town has a dark side. This is Andrew Fitzgerald from the Every Town podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories, most of which you've never heard of. Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio, a 29-year-old father trying to find his way back to his hotel when he disappeared and was never heard from again. And Elizabeth Shove from Lugoff, South Carolina, who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and taken to his underground bunker in the woods. And we give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. We cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists, so go check out the Everytown podcast, because every town, no matter how nice it may seem, has a dark side. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. When John Keel first uh, appeared on the scene and they gathered together several people that had seen this thing recently. So he was able to to interview them. A lot of the people that had a sighting of the Mothman would go home and they would have an outbreak of poltergeist phenomena. Of course, poltergeist phenomena is where things seem to fly around the room or whatever inexplicably. It's a an experience that is as old as we are. But what the heck? You know, why why would people seeing this this creature you know, experience something like that. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain access to premium episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. So I'm looking forward to this hour uh, as we talk about a number of things, the Mothman, window areas or portals and vortices, high strangeness on Bray Road and modern day UFO experiences. Steve Ward has been fascinated by the unexplained for over half a century. There were two major events that inspired his interest in the unexplained growing up in Michigan and the March 1966 UFO flap occurred virtually in his backyard. The following November, of course, a winged humanoid chased two couples down a lonely country road near Point Pleasant, West Virginia. The legend of the Mothman was born. Steve would be chasing the Mothman the rest of his life, influenced primarily by the great John Keel and Jacques Vallée. His views on UFOs became unconventional and moved toward a more paranormal explanation. Steve's main area of research is what some call high strangeness or window areas, as John Keel dubbed them, where disparate types of paranormal phenomena all seem to occur in the same location. And he believes that studying 
these paranormally active locations may be the key to understanding what the origin behind these manifestations may be. He has his own podcast on the Paranormal UK radio network called The High Strangeness Factor. He's also writing a book as yet untitled that deals with the underlying patterns that connect different types of paranormal phenomena throughout history. Steve, welcome. How are you? Uh, great. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. My pleasure. So it all began with you, uh, it, with the, well, that the UFO flap uh, in Michigan of 1966. When you say it happened practically in your backyard, explain. Well, I grew up uh, in the Detroit area, and uh, these uh, the wave of sightings, we, we were getting reports from places like Ann Arbor, uh, Hillsdale, Dexter. And, of course, these are the ones that uh, some, some dubbed the, the swamp gas uh, era or the swamp gas sightings because Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who uh, uh, then was the head of Project Blue Book, he was an astronomer at Northwestern University in, in Evanston, Illinois. He came on the scene, and he, he was still tied to, to Project Blue Book. And uh, Heineck had begun to believe that there was really something to this, but he had to kind of straddle the fence between uh, – Blue Book wanted uh, him to kind of uh, uh, produce an explanation and just kind of move on. Heineck suggested that some of these things, uh, some of the reports may have been caused by – uh, swamp gas or marsh gas, and he uh, was only talking about a, a few specific uh, reports in the uh, Hillsdale area. But of course, the, the the mainstream press ran with it, and that was their explanation for the for all UFOs was was swamp gas. But uh, I was I was in junior high at the time. I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't uh, drive around playing UFO investigator, and so uh, but still these reports were coming in from uh, very credible people. A lot of police officers saw these things and. The Frank Manor Farm in Dexter, there was a landing, uh, uh, landing marks were left behind. So uh, it was it was something that was, you know, happening in real time. And uh, it was just, uh, of course, the, the press was uh, it treated a lot of the sightings tongue in cheek, unfortunately, as they always have. Uh, but uh, it was uh, it was really a great time to be alive because that's when. Uh, uh, when, when all these reports, uh, credible reports were coming through, in, in fact, the reason Dr. Hynek showed up on the scene, he uh, he went to his uh, master's at Project Blue Book when these, this wave of sightings started. And he said, well, do you want me to go to Michigan and, and, and investigate this? And they said, no, no, we, we haven't gotten any official reports yet. But it turned out that uh, uh, then Senator Gerald Ford, uh, uh, a ways before he became our president, uh, was kind of angry because a lot of the good citizens of Michigan were reporting something, and uh, they were credible people. And he wanted to know why, you know, they they weren't on the scene investigating this. So the next day, Heineck was on a plane and he showed up in Michigan. Uh, the Hillsdale sighting that was at a school, wasn't it? Wasn't that a mass sighting? Yes, uh, th at that time Hillsdale School was a uh, was an all uh, uh, girls school. And uh, they they were watching from their dorm windows, I believe, and they saw these strange lights. Yeah, I'm not sure that that swamp gas was actually a good uh, explanation for some of this, but for some of what they saw. But uh, they were seeing these strange lights moving through the, through the woods. But uh, yeah, that was uh, uh, that was the, the the one the one sighting. And unfortunately, I mean, I remember that that news conference as a kid, seeing it live, where Heineck is. Uh, you know, in in, uh, in front of all the press people, and he uh, famously he was given a photograph of, to to look at to comment on of George Adamski, the the famous uh, contactee right. who supposedly contacted Orthon in the, de in the desert in the early fifties. Uh, he's got these these classic uh, flying saucer photographs, whatever they may actually be, and Heineck uh, commented that it looks something like a chicken brooder. But uh, so, again, he was trying to, uh, uh, you know, he, he was he was still tied to the Air Force, which was very frustrating for him. But late, late, in later years, he did separate from from Project Blue Book, started his own uh, UFO organization called the Center for UFO Studies right. in Evanston, Illinois. And uh, and I actually got to see him speak 10 years later uh, at a MUFON symposium in uh, in June. I believe it was June of 1976. And uh, it, it was pretty funny because he uh, uh, he he called his he talk called his talk 
swamp gas plus 10 and counting. So he, I even, I still have, I've got that recording somewhere. I was there with my little cassette player uh, recording the speakers of that, that uh, uh, symposium, which was uh, a lot of fun. Uh, but uh, he, uh, he, he, you know, he, he reminisced about those days, <clears throat> talked about the mistakes that he made. But uh, he, he had become one of the good guys now because he was, uh, and, and he was free to, uh, to uh, pursue his own research and not worry about some master uh, behind him, trying to pull the strings, trying to get him to downplay some of these uh, excellent reports. So, in, in Michigan in '66, did you have any sightings? No, I, I've I've seen a couple odd things in the sky, but nothing spectacular. I'm I am for the most part uh, a non-experiencer. Uh, although you have what you call sort of a, a an unconventional view of the UFO phenomenon, uh, that it may be tied more to the paranormal. Do you want to? Explain how that works. It, yes. Um, it, you know, uh, most of us, even inc- including people like uh, uh, J. Allen Hynek, uh, uh, John Keel, uh, most uh, famously known for the Mothman prophecies, Jacques Vallée, uh, author of many books, at, including Passport to Magonia. Uh, most of us started out looking at the phenomena and suspecting it was, you know, it seemed to be obviously that we should go to the extraterrestrial hypothesis uh, for an explanation. But, uh, uh, and, you know, I was, I was very happy with that back in the sixties. You know, we were seeing these strange craft landing sometimes, sometimes uh, some entity perhaps dressed in a, in silver coveralls would, would jump out, take soil samples or whatever. Sometimes people were claimed that they were uh, given rides or seen inside the spacecraft. But, uh, uh, so that, I was very happy with that for a while, but then uh, John Keel, uh, he wrote a book, uh, a couple books actually came out in the 1970s. Uh, one of them was called at that time, uh, Strange Creatures from Time and Space, and now I think it's called The Guide to Mysterious Beings. And that's where he kind of eased people into it, his, his, what became his very unconventional views, that, uh, um, that the – he was trying to account for, you know, why did these things, these strange lights and sometimes cryptids like Bigfoot or whatever, they would seem to show up out of nowhere – uh, they would, but they were seemed to be physical. They would leave footprints, perhaps hair samples or whatever. And uh, sometimes the the strange lights were appeared to be metallic craft. Other times, they just seemed to be some kind of light energy or whatever. But uh, he was just trying to account for for why is it they sort of show up, either amazed people, sometimes scared the heck out of them, and then kind of vanished. And then the here's the book that just. Uh, and I've said this a hundred times. This is the book that turned my my world upside down, and that was when he wrote uh, UFOs, Operation Trojan Horse, and that's where he makes a case that all these things seem to be connected. He he talks about patterns, connections, parallels between what seem to be these different types of phenomena. So he, he in in that book he connected. Uh, Classic haunting phenomena or psychic phenomena, uh, cryptid reports, uh, UFOs and so forth as all part of the same phenomena. Uh, Sort of – by the way, John Keel considered himself a Fordian. Uh, He did not like to be called a ufologist. And, of course, uh, a Fordian is a a nod to Charles Fort who wrote uh, those four great books starting with The Book of the Damned. Where he accumulated all these different uh, oddities, and, and and a lot of them were out of newspapers or scientific journals, things like falls of fish from the sky, uh, giant ice falls, strange meandering lights, and so forth. So uh, it was uh, uh, in Trojan Horse. He uh, he talks about uh, well, he used used a term that he borrowed from Ivan Sanderson. Ivan Sanderson, of course, was the great British naturalist, transplanted to New Jersey. Uh, he wrote uh, The Abominable Snowman, Legend Come to Life, wrote great books on UFOs. And and uh, Sanderson and uh, Keel were colleagues. Well, Keel bo- borrowed a term that he used as a literary device, which was ultra-terrestrial. And it, it, it was simply trying to come to grips, grips with this this elusive phenomena. Uh, did seem to 
be kind of reflective of of us of where where our consci- consciousness was at a particular time. Here's the term paranormal mimicry. Um, it, it, let me just try and give an example. Uh, the strange meandering lights that we we see we've seen for for centuries through the skies. In you know in modern day we see a a, a nocturnal light moving in an erratic fashion. We might say, ah, it's a it's a UFO. It's a metallic spaceship from from elsewhere. And the if you go back to another time in in a certain context, some people thought that it was obviously it's a witch riding her broom carrying her lantern. Uh, the dragon tracks of the of the Chinese, the uh, uh, fairy lights, and so forth. In different eras, these things take on different uh, beliefs, and. Uh, he, he also thought that perhaps uh, – now, Keel's thinking wasn't static. He, uh, he left the door open for other possibilities. But he talked about uh, transmogrifications of energy, that perhaps whatever these, these things were, they uh, – he, he thought in, – in, in fact, he, in the Mothman prophecies, he, he states that perhaps the only objectively real thing about some of these reports are these strange meandering lights – and when people see them, they, they respond in different ways. Perhaps they're programmed or, or whatever. It may, may be kind of a natural process. Some people will see a giant triangle UFO going through the skies that other people may not see. Some may see a, a, a giant hairy biped wandering into the woods. Uh, so he wasn't sure that these things were uh, something uh, that was completely separate from our experience, it seems to me that uh, that perhaps in in some of these areas, and I have to stress, there's there's more than one explanation for uh, all these things. I believe, but it may be that these things have uh, sort of responded to our belief systems of the time, and carrying on that uh, nocturnal light analogy. In, in another, in an earlier era, of, around 1897, people were seeing these large dirigible-like spaceships that were. Uh, they were advanced for our time period, but they weren't super advanced. They were like these big uh, uh, dirigibles or zeppelins really before that technology took over. Uh, then the, the next phase of the phenomena were the strange ghost flyers, these strange planes that would come from like northern Sweden way up in the north. And they, these giant planes with eight propellers sometimes, and they would shine uh, spotlights down on these small little towns in the middle of nowhere in northern Sweden. And then, then they seemed to retreat back into the north. So what, what were they? Were they some kind of a secret uh, civilization or hidden civilization? They couldn't figure out where these things were landing. So you get these, these, these continual mysteries. But uh, there are – it just seems that uh, – and when he used the term transmogrification, he thought that perhaps this was – he even used the term of the uh, – when he talked about ultra-terrestrials, he would use it sometimes interchangeably with elemental, uh, like ref- referring to the little people and so forth. So it's uh, – it's it's very it's kind of hard to convey uh, Keel in a, in a few paragraphs, but he uh, because of he, what he did was, and what what I advocate is we listen to the experiencers. What have they reported? Oftentimes, their reports aren't that conventional. If they see a a Bigfoot or a UFO, there's sometimes there's this very high strangeness aspect to them. And, and sometimes they have people would withhold certain details of their experience because they were just too far out. Strange enough seeing a Bigfoot, but if the thing seemed to vanish in the middle of nowhere uh, or, or its footprints seemed to stop in the middle of nowhere and, and then end, uh, that is a little bit harder to explain. Or if they uh, saw what appeared to be a metallic spacecraft uh, of some type physically change shape before their eyes. There are When you get into these reports – there are just so many oddities that uh, I think, uh, at least it took me away from looking at this as a strictly nuts and bolts, uh, strictly extraterrestrial idea of what they are. Although some of those things maybe uh, actually apply to some of the reports. I had Whitley Strieber on the program last week, and he was recounting some of the uh, – the, um Strange events. Talk about high strangeness that occurred at his vacation home in Kingston, New York, back in uh, December of 1985. And uh, he mentioned um, seeing uh, an old high school friend 
in the midst of, I guess this was sort of a recovered memory, perhaps through uh, hypnosis, a forensic hypnotist helped them recover this memory of seeing a, um, a childhood friend who had since died. And, uh, and then on a subsequent um, event, friends had come over to the, uh, the vacation property and someone else had sort of a similar uh, experience, seeing a dead friend in conjunction with, you know, seeing strange lights and so forth. And it seems to me John Keel had something very similar. He was visited, I believe, at his apartment in New York. He spent the afternoon with somebody, an old friend, um, spent hours oh, yes. with him talking. It- and yes, then later was, he discovered that that person had been dead for, for several years. And that was something he kept close to his vest for a long time. He did not mention it in the Mothman Prophecies book because, you know, while he wrote about some pretty wild stuff, that's that's really wild. But but, but earlier, uh, in if you read uh, uh, things like Trojan Horse, uh, our, our Haunted Planet and so forth, he would uh, talk about how – uh, that wasn't terribly uncommon where people would see a landing or whatever. And uh, the entities that are associated with UFOs are quite varied. I mean, nowadays we, we just seem to be talking mostly about the graves. But he said there were times when people would say that they had seen a dead relative or somebody that, that like you said, that they knew was dead would walk off the craft and greet them. Now, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's really bizarre. I think – uh, researcher uh, Joshua Cutchin is working on uh, a book that might deal with some of these areas, but it's just another another way that it pulls in something we consider a paranormal, uh, you know, the the dead uh, appearing, and uh, uh, so uh, you know there was another uh, one of the one of the famous contactees, not as well known as George Adamski, but a a lady named Dana Howard. Her, she claimed that she was contacting a woman uh, named Diane from Venus. Well, her first contact with this entity was through a classic seance. This apparition entity or whatever seemed to materialize, called herself Diane, and, and otherwise it was sort of a classic contactee experience. Later on, she claimed that they were actual real experiences where she met this being and you know i uh, had the had ride on a spaceship or whatever but regardless of the how we don't know how true that may be or what she actually experienced very interesting that the the first uh, you know with with many contactees they they uh, uh supposedly had their experience out in a very remote area and here she is having it with, with a seance but yeah there's a uh, Keel kept finding these uh, bizarre patterns. Uh, even some of the uh, some of the reports of the and it, let me just digress for a minute. Uh, the the greys, the classic greys, the big headed guys with the big black eyes, uh, little bodies, they really didn't seem to show up in mass until late seventies, early eighties. Uh, you you could find reports that seemed a little bit like a gray. But uh, we had quite a variety of, of entities uh, uh, prior to that. If you've ever read uh, Jim and Cora Lorenzen, uh, of, of the formerly of the uh, uh, unfortunately now defunct uh, Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, APRO, they wrote great books that just fascinated me as a kid uh, called Flying Saucer Occupants. And he would go through some of the uh, – uh, they, uh, they would go through some of the same classic cases like the Flatwoods Monster, the Kelly Hopkinsville Goblins and so forth. <clears throat> but I wonder if, uh, if, if Keel is on to something about uh, part of this being reflective uh, in nature. Uh, it was late 70s, we had close encounters of the third kind, where essentially you had a bunch of sort of pale grays in that, in that film. Uh, Whitley Strieber, you just mentioned him, the classic cover of his first book on UFOs called Communion. Uh, it was like this stuff was perhaps impressed on, on in human consciousness. And then it seemed like we started getting more and more uh, uh, people exp- experiencing uh, uh, encounters with these grays. So, uh, you know, it could also be if it's a very physical phenomena, it could be that the, the grays are the uh, big kids in the block that, that have pushed out all the others. But if you look back at the, uh, the, the wide variety of uh, types of craft 
that are, are have been reported, the type of entity and the type of experience. Well, you have the general categories where they are similar, uh, sometimes uh, small beings, dwarfs, uh, giants, uh, uh, sometimes things that look very inhuman. Um, they, uh, uh, it, it's just a, it is such a wide variety that you, when you get down to the specifics, it's very hard to find, you know, two or three entities that are, are identical, uh, okay. two or three crafts that are perhaps identical. Steve, got to jump in here. We'll take a quick time out. We'll come back. Researcher of high strangeness, Stephen Ward. Have you ever wondered why we call French fries French fries? Or why something is the greatest thing since sliced bread? There are answers to those questions. Everything Everywhere Daily is a podcast for curious people who want to learn more about the world around them. Every day, you'll learn something new about things you never knew you didn't know. Subjects include history, science, geography, mathematics, and culture. If you're a curious person and want to learn more about the world you live in, just subscribe to Everything Everywhere Daily wherever you cast your pod. Reduce stress and enhance your immune system. ESS60 from C60 Evo. C60 is the carbon 60 molecule known to deliver more than 172 times the power of vitamin C. 172 times. ESS60 is the purest form of C60, a known antiviral, antibacterial, and anti-inflammatory remedy that works. ESS60 neutralizes free radicals from cell metabolization and external toxins to help minimize inflammation and maximize detoxification. Further, people report better sleep, more energy, and renewed mental clarity when they take our ESS60 organic oil. To order your miracle molecule ESS60, click on the C60 Evo link in the episode notes for this podcast or go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. C- C60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. Buy now and save 10% by using the coupon code EVRS at checkout. Again, use the coupon code EVRS at checkout. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess you better say it because Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Stephen Ward is with us, and uh, we are talking about high strangeness. Uh, how do we listen to high strange the high strangeness factor on the uh, the Paranormal UK Radio Network, Steve? Yeah, you can just if you just Google that the uh, uh, Paranormal UK Radio Network High Strangeness Factor. My name, Steve Ward. Uh, you, you will find it. It's a uh, it, uh, you can download it on Spreaker, uh, uh, Podbean, I believe. There should be several platforms. And uh, I just uh, uh, did a show uh, to commemorate the my third anniversary, which is is kind of nice. Uh, after you know, thinking I would never uh, never do something like this, have a, a podcast. So it's it's been great to, to talk to a quite a variety of of fascinating people. And uh, like one one was uh, uh, over a year ago was Alan Godfrey. Who was a famous uh, had a famous abduction experience. He was a police officer in Todd Ward in England in 1980, and he had a missing time uh, experience that he uh, followed up on it several months later. And it was kind of a a classic experience, which had uh, it actually had some uh, of the overtones of uh, of folklore and so forth. We mentioned uh, Jacques Vallée earlier, and and that's another thing that uh, another factor that comes in is when you uh, look at various traditions in folklore and and then uh, uh, compare those elements to uh, uh, some modern-day UFO experiences, you know, you think, wow, it's almost like it's a, a seamless progression or connection between both types of phenomena. And just one example, we're very familiar with um, the missing time aspects yes. of, of, of abduction experiences. Well, People would experience missing time when they encountered the fairies or the elementals or the good people. And uh, they would uh, – <clears throat> uh, a, a young boy might be playing ball with, with the fairies, and he thinks just uh, an hour has gone by. He's been gone all day. Uh, sometimes when you look at the 
descriptions of the of the entities, the the what we we think of as ETs in their little coveralls or whatever. Uh, and then if you look at the classic um, um, uh, manifestation or experience with one of the elementals, if you were to exchange clothing with them, in some cases they're virtually indistinguishable. So uh, now in, instead of uh, – of uh, being whisked away to an unscheduled medical exam, uh, oftentimes people would end up in perhaps a cave or inside a mountain or whatever. Uh, and of course, sometimes uh, uh, some some of the modern day experiences, people believe they've been taken uh, to a uh, underground facility. So uh, there are just many many interesting parallels. Uh, between and, and Jacques Vallée first approached this in his book Passport to Magonia. That's that book I read after Trojan Horse. You know, I, I was barely recovering from Trojan Horse, which <laughs> at first I, I really resisted because I was very comfortable with my the idea of these things being ET. Some of them may well be. Some of them may be very physical and, and maybe come from other planets. But uh, yeah, but Trojan uh, uh, Magonia just kind of put the last nail in the coffin for me of my earlier viewpoint uh, of well, these things. Well, I was reading, it was an interview with Jacques Vallée in Wired Magazine recently, and, and he, he said that, um, you know, here he is after, what, five, six, de- probably six decades studying this. He has no clue. After all this time, he has no clue what this is all about. He says he firmly believes the truth is out there, but he's he's just uh, at a complete loss to explain well, I- his books are really fascinating. Uh, you know, I actually, uh, I, uh, last month or so, I, I found an old cassette in the basement cleaning out, and it was marked on their save, which was unusual. Usually I was, when I would record stuff off the radio or whatever, I was very specific. But I, So I put this in a cassette player, and it was an interview with Jacques Vallée uh, from 91 uh, from a local Detroit uh, uh, talk uh station uh, wxyt it was and the the local guy there mark scott who was mostly a political guy uh still and uh was very fascinated by he was reading uh jacques fillet's uh revelations revelations is part of a a trilogy that followed some years after magonia uh confrontations revelations and uh, dimensions and uh they're having a great conversation while i'm listening to this thing and i i uh and I, then I hear me. I, I'm one of the callers that called in. I had completely forgotten. I, I kind of remembered that I had recorded it at work that day because I'd heard he was going to be on. But to my great surprise, there I, I'm, I'm immortalized from 30 <laughs> years ago. On uh, and it was it was great. I had a, a nice conversation with him. I certainly wasn't the only caller, but it was uh, it's it's was pretty phenomenal. To actually, uh, I've never met him, uh, and I never got to meet John Keel. But uh, it was great to. Uh, uh, and, and there were other callers that were very interesting too. So it was a, a really a great segment. So uh, we, we we were talking earlier about the 1966 UFO flap in in Michigan, and the other event that you know sort of I changed the trajectory of your life was in November of '66, and then into 1967, and that was of course the Mothman uh, sighting, starting with uh, uh, two couples that saw this large flying man with with uh, glowing red eyes and 10 foot wingspan following along their car, the, the Scarberries and the, uh, the, the Millettes, I believe. Um, how do you, how do you um, view that uh, experience? Because ultimately I think something like a hundred people reported seeing this and they all sort of gave a similar, it varied, but there was a, kind of a similar description uh, of this, of this creature. Yes. Um, and- what, what are your thoughts on the Mothman? Well, it was. Uh, I remember seeing the first report. This is the the, the uh, Scarberries and the Mallets were were two married couples. They were driving around what they they still call the T and T area, which is about six miles north of Point Pleasant. This was an old munitions area where they developed uh, explosives for World War II, and they would store these things in these concrete igloos, of which there's about a hundred of them over this this area, which is now called the McClintic Wildlife Area, uh, long abandoned. But if you look at the old photographs in the 1940s, you see this just incredible complex that they had there. And 
so that's where that's where they first saw this thing. And you're you're right. Keel originally chronicled a little over a hundred people that saw this thing. Most of the reports were uh, similar. There were some variations, and some people saw something quite different. Like uh, Tom Urey saw something more like a thunderbird, but uh, it was uh, as you said, uh, six or seven feet tall, dark in color, gray or black, ten uh, foot wingspan, piercing red, glowing eyes. Uh, it uh, Linda Scarberry, who I got a chance to talk to uh, a few years before she passed on, um, said that it seemed like it, it had its wing caught in the fence or whatever. But they saw this thing, and they, they were just absolutely startled. They hit the gas, and they uh, took off south on Route 62, which takes them back into Point Pleasant, and this thing chased their car. So uh, – and that was, and when I when I first heard about it, it and, and that particular sighting hit the wire services. It went all over the world, and this was even before they had dubbed uh, it Mothman. Uh, some of the locals just called it the bird, and uh, apparently some uh, creative copy editor dubbed him Mothman. The the Batman TV show was on at the time and very popular, so it was probably just a play on Batman. Uh, it it, it uh, whatever it was. It didn't really have any characteristics of a moth, and it was it was hard. You know, the the head or the eyes seemed to be almost kind of sunken in its chest, or the head was very low or whatever. But the thing is, uh, you know, in, when I first read that as a kid, I, it was fascinating, and uh, and so I that's when I, I uh, around that time period, and and following, I would start to read. I was reading articles by John Keel. And he would allude to his investigations at times. Now, it was maybe 10 years later that he actually wrote the Mothman Prophecies. But uh, he uh, so, but he gave us some tantalizing uh, stories and some of the things that he discovered in Point Pleasant at that time and talked about the credible people that saw this thing. Now, I'm always looking for patterns and connections and parallels. There's, you, we're, we're familiar with uh, uh, conjunctivitis, uh, yes. eye burn or whatever. Pink eye. Many, yeah. Pink eye. When uh, uh, people have been uh, in close proximity to a strange light, whether it looks like a metallic craft or it just looks like a blob of light, sometimes they experience this this malady. Well, one of the primary witnesses, a young lady named Connie Carpenter, saw this thing. She was driving by the Mason County Golf Course, and it was it was uh, standing there. Now. The Mothman was quite a quite of a paradox because uh, sometimes it would be seen taking off straight like a helicopter. Like a, no no bird of any description or size is going to do that. That's what she saw. Sometimes it would seem to put its wings behind it and then just take off straight up. But she saw this thing was terrified and mesmerized by the red glowing eyes. In the days following, she developed conjunctivitis, something that is. Uh, you know, is mostly associated with uh, some kind of a strange or unexplained or unidentified craft in the sky. Yeah, that was actually when when John Keel first uh, appeared on the scene. He asked. Uh, he was at I think it was Mrs. Dewitt's house, and uh, they they gathered together uh, several people that had seen this thing recently. So he was able to to interview them. Something else he found, and and other researchers, it was a, a Swedish researcher whose name I don't recall, but he was also a colleague of Kiel, kind of followed him in a year or two later and, and interviewed many of the same witnesses. Oh, was that Brun, Brunvand? Jan Harold Brunvand, I think? I, I, no, I think this was a different one. Ah, but, okay. uh, he, he, had, he, was, he made some really good friendships with several uh, of the uh, Swedish people, sw- Swedish researchers. But uh, they were finding that uh, a lot of the people that had a sighting of the Mothman would they go home and they would have an outbreak of poltergeist phenomena. Of course, poltergeist phenomena is where uh, things seem to fly around the room or whatever inexplicably. It's a an experience that is as old as we are. But what the heck? You know why? Why would people seeing this this creature, uh, uh, you know, experience something like that? It, it was uh, the Mothman had many problems with it trying to put it in a physical realm. You know, the way the – obviously the wings didn't the work well. The, the A 10-foot wingspan probably wouldn't lift something that's six or seven feet tall. Uh, some people uh, that had a close proximity 
encounter with it, said it's they heard something like a humming or machinery or something like that. Keel got some of those reports. So it, it may have even left footprints by the uh, the old North Power Plant. He saw, Keel found uh, sets of different types of footprints, but some kind of uh, weird-looking skinny footprints that may be attributed to the creature or not. He also found large dog-like footprints, something that today we would associate with the, with the dog man. And he and, and uh, 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 Ivan Sanderson and other subsequent researchers have all said that the, uh, you will find these kinds of footprints in these paranormal hotspots. So that's fascinating. I mean, the you know they aren't weren't really reporting dogman like like sightings, but something was making these things, and so you know how do we? That, that's what I find so fascinating. How do we reconcile these different uh, different aspects that seem like they should go into another category? You right, know, and, uh, and and to further complicate things, we have the connection between the Mothman and the the collapse of the Silver Bridge in December of sixty seven. What yes. is the connection there? Well. Uh, you, you'll talk to some people. Some believe that this creature uh, actually caused it. Others uh, thought it was more of a harbinger, like a banshee. <clears throat> My problem is these harbingers are, you know, how how we, you know, if it actually is there trying to warn us, uh, the messages are very deceptive. It's, it's very difficult. Nobody looked at the bridge. Even those that some people were getting uh, prophetic dreams or whatever, Keel believed that uh, he was in contact, by the way, with several people. This is where the prophecies comes in from the Mothman prophecies. There were several what he called silent contactees, and these are people that believed that they were uh, in contact with some kind of a being, a, a space brother, some kind of a higher intelligence, and they would be given prophecies that would sometimes come true. But after, at some point, sometimes they would get the big prophecy, like the, the there's going to be a mass landing on the hill, and get your buddies out there, and then it would be gone. The same general thing happened with the uh, leading up to the collapse of the Silver Bridge. Uh, he was getting messages from these contactees that didn't know each other. They were he called them silent contactees because they weren't particularly interested in any publicity, but they were telling him that their that their sources, their the the messages that were getting, it was leading up to some kind of an EM effect, and the implication was there was going to be some kind of a tragedy on the Ohio River. Keel believed it was going to be one of the factories, perhaps going to blow up, and he he was uh, he talked to Mary Heyer. Mary Heyer was the uh, Mary Heyer was a local reporter that became a friend and colleague. They they would actually go down a little bit south of Point Pleasant and watch the strange meandering lights go over every night. These were they were so plentiful, but. Uh, he told Mary that not to tell anybody of his suspicions because if a factory did blow up, the first person they're going to go to is this guy that, that prophesied it, wondering if he planted the bomb. And the, uh, the, the, these messages were, were, were telling – and again, I remind people that these were coming from people that didn't know each other. Well, they started talking about this EM effect that was going to take place on December 15th. The closer it got to the date, they would get more specific information. Uh, the moment when President Johnson uh, uh, turned on the lights for the Christmas tree in Rockefeller Center, uh, there was supposed to be a uh, uh, some kind of a tragedy take place, uh, I think three days of darkness, and uh, whatever, you know, they weren't specific about what this EM effect meant. Well, what happened was, now Keel by this time, was uh, he, he admitted how paranoid he got. Uh, it was interesting to hear him interviewed on uh, Art Bell, Coast to Coast. He hadn't done an interview for a long time. But when the film came out, he, uh, he, he, was, he granted, granted that interview. And he said the one thing that the film really nailed was the par paranoia that I felt at the time. Well, at the moment that this EM effect was supposed to take place, he, got, he saw the messages come over the TV set that the Silver Bridge – uh, that that joined Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and Gallupolis, Ohio, had collapsed. Uh, this is uh, December fifteenth, nineteen sixty-seven, and uh, it's uh, 
it's it's about to, it's in, in, in lower 20 degrees and the sun is almost down the bridge is filled with rush hour traffic and the whole thing just collapses in a few moments into the ohio river and uh uh 46 people lost their life so you know uh the i, I don't know that uh that the, the Mothman was significant, you know, in in the, the toward the tragedy or trying to warn people or, or whatever. I think it it just it happened with all the other high strangeness that went on at the time. It, when you look at other other areas, other high strangeness areas, oftentimes there seems to be sort of a predominant cryptid involved. Sometimes more than one. Look at the Skinwalker Ranch that has been uh, on on television. The the book by by Knapp and Kelleher, the hunter right. and skinwalker. So uh, it was uh, – I, I tend not to believe that the, this, these, this being or whatever caused the bridge collapse. But uh, you look at this that, that year of all the, you know, the strange lights, missing time, uh, visits by so-called men in black. Uh, it was just – it's just one of those classic areas that still – happens now and then today there are other areas where this this wide variety of phenomena seems to take place and it's very hard to understand why what the connection are uh, connections are but it does seem that it, it can't be just a, a, a mere coincidence that all these different types of haunting uh, cryptid uh, ufo meandering light phenomena all takes place in one area well appalachia seems to be a, a real hot spot um, i spoke with a gentleman who wrote a book about uh, haunted hollows and hills in Greene County, which is, I guess, the south is at the southwestern corner of Pennsylvania, and uh, it's often cited as one of the most haunted locations in uh, in North America. And then you mentioned Skinwalker. Uh, is there a common thread there? Do you think? I don't know. Is there something about these physical locations when we're talking about portals? Is there something in the soil composition? High iron content. Uh, sometimes we hear about limestone. I mean, wh- wh- right. wh- what's well, going on there? That I don't know. The, the people that are a lot smarter than I, I am have talked about things like limestone and quartz and perhaps the physical makeup of the geography uh, sort of uh, allows these things or helps these things to become manifest. But uh, – it's it's just it it's such a impenetrable mystery uh, as to the why why these things all happen in the same area and there are so many of them uh, like Marley Woods the uh, the Bridgewater Triangle out uh, in Massachusetts um, it, it's it's something that I don't have a, a a grasp on yet as to why certain areas seem to be real hot spots for all these different types of phenomena. Do you think there's any um, – th- was it Frank Myers, the uh, the researcher, talked about – I think it was Myers who talked about the perhaps the role of um, electromagnetic fields? Uh, it, perhaps. It does, it does seem like uh, you know, people will get uh, readings off the charts in these areas with their meters and so forth. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not always consistent. It's almost like that window uh, opens – you know, a little ways, and you know the phenomena takes place. The you could where you can get physical readings, that, you know, uh, even cast physical footprints uh, of these things, and then it perhaps it closes again, and uh, it, like like Brigadoon, it just shows up once in a while. But uh, in, in in the Point Pleasant area, people still have weird experiences, but it doesn't seem to have the the high level. That it did there, where and the even the Skinwalker Ranch it has a lot of activity, but uh, they they talk about how back in the '90s it really peaked. I mean, it was just it was crazy the, the things that were going on there. So uh, it's uh, that's that's what we're trying to figure out, and I, I wish I had uh, you know a a great answer. Maybe when I finish my book one day, I'll have all the answers. Uh- well, speaking about you know EMF and so forth, and some some people are more sensitive to electrical fields than others. Um, do you think that might explain why some people seem to to have these experiences and others do not? Perhaps their brains are wired somewhat it, it, differently. 
It may very well. Keel believed uh, early on that uh, certain people were naturally psychic. There were, there were certain people that were wired a certain way that would be more apt to have uh, some of these experiences. Maybe that's why I have had I've had one bizarre experience in, in my life, really. Uh, but uh, so many of these people, uh, in fact, you said that sometimes the same person that would experience a UFO. Uh, and, and that's why he had this great catchphrase. He said, ask the contactee, meaning the experiencer, what he or she had for breakfast and not literally what they what they actually ate for breakfast, but find out all about that individual because he found that they from from the time of childhood or whatever. Like look at Whitley Strieber. He found out that he was having these experiences as a young child and his family was as well. Well, so many of these people were having uh, would have experiences, bizarre paranormal experiences all their life. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 living in haunted houses, seeing strange lights, having missing time and so forth. But there does seem to be that for whatever reason, certain people are more tuned in and prone to this. And he, he found that somebody, uh, I talked to a lady in New Hampshire a few years ago who uh, had a missing time experience. So I asked her a series of John Keel style questions. And I found out that they were experiencing classic haunting phenomena. Uh, her sons were seeing orbs inside and outside the house. Uh, it's just all kinds of things that fit the pattern. And then I asked her, I said, this is going to sound crazy, but have you ever seen anything, any kind of an animal that you couldn't identify or, or just looked very strange? And she said, no. And then she said, well, well wait a minute. My mother-in-law and sister-in-law on this near this property both both saw something strange in the woods. This thing was seen uh, two different times, and it was something like a panther-like creature, but it was standing on two legs. Uh, so I got all kinds of. Uh, she saw. Uh, she was seeing shadow people. Uh, I never would have, you know, if I was frozen in the 1960s, believing that these things were ET. I would have said uh, to she and her husband, "Well, I hope you make a breakthrough with your the missing time." And I would have never known to ask all these other questions because, and I've talked to other people like this, uh, that Stan Gordon has, uh, uh, the Pennsylvania researcher, uh, Rosemary Allen Guiley found an interesting connection between people that were experiencing, uh, having abduction experiences, and they were also experiencing classic uh, uh, shadow people experiences. So there's there's something that binds these all things together. There's something where some people seem to have many of these experiences, whereas others have absolutely none or very few. Steve, I really enjoyed uh, meeting you and speaking with you. We'll have to do this again. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>